Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast, where we visit the darkest corners of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service called me the original Internet Godfather. Now, what does it take to get a title like that? 39 felonies, a place on the United States Most Wanted list, an escape from prison, and I built the first organized cybercrime community, Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew was a precursor to today's darknet and darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. This first season of the Anglerfish podcast tells of my rise and fall as the world's first internet godfather. It's a fascinating story. You'll learn how cybercriminals think, how modern cybercrime came into being, and why it's so successful and hard to stop, and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to one of using the knowledge I acquired as a criminal to help protect others against the type of person I used to be. got out of prison you got back in prison you did some time you got out and you started breaking the law did, did you <laughs> what happened after that did they catch you breaking the law again well see that's 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 the thing you you've mentioned you got out of prison went back got out started breaking the, i don't know which point in my life you're talking about there. <laughs> <laughs> well i was talking about of course uh being in prison then right, escaping right. Uh, then you went back and and you served a time out in Big Spring, Texas. Right in Big Spring, and uh, well, up at Fort Worth, did in, the drug program and the drug got program. loose. Yeah, okay, got loose from there. Okay, so that that was your last time behind bars. Oh no, 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 no. So I, I was uh, released in 2011. Uh, the drug program, I, I completed that. Was released in 2011. And when you're released from prison, you have to go to a halfway house. So it's they don't want you to go home directly. They want to, uh, to to try to introduce you back into society gradually. Right. So most people spend three to six months at a halfway house. In reality, it's it's sometimes far shorter than that. As soon as you can find a job in your hometown, a lot of uh, these halfway houses tend to cut you loose at that point. All right. So um, I was in Big Spring. I was actually, and I was in Fort Worth, Texas. I was released, they put you on a Greyhound bus, and they sent me to Panama City, Florida, where my father was. But uh, Panama City doesn't have a halfway house. So instead, the halfway house was in Tallahassee. All right? Ah, okay. So, bus takes me to Florida, drops me off at the Greyhound station there. My dad meets me at the station. He's there to, to pick me up. Now, he's not supposed to do that, but he, he did it anyway. So my dad picks me up, and... As we're driving, he asked me if I want anything to eat. So we stop at Popeye's, get some chicken. It's before the nice chicken sandwich they've before got. Before the days. chicken sandwich. Okay, yeah. So I get some chicken. And uh, on the way driving to the halfway house, he hands me some gift cards. And those gift cards are these vanilla Visa gift cards. And they've got $500 a pop on them. So he, I don't know, he gives me six or seven of these things, you know. And uh, says, I don't want you to be without money. And he starts asking questions about the tax fraud. You know, he's telling me what he's been doing and the amount of money he's been making and stuff like that. And he was living in Kentucky at that point in time. But what happened was my dad, so my dad was married to my mom. My mom leaves him. 
he meets this woman that lives in Panama City, and he marries her. Now, they were married the first time. Notice I said the first time. Mm -hmm. They were married the first time, I don't know, a decade or longer, something like that. My dad gets this wild hair in his ass, and he decides he's going to cheat on her. So they get divorced. He moves to Louisville, Kentucky. Is up there, I don't know, six, seven years, something like that. And during that point in time is when he's committing this tax fraud. All right. Now, what happens from there is he, he gets another wild hair in his ass, and he figures out that, well, Pat was actually a pretty good woman to me, and I loved her. I would like to get back with her. So he goes back to Panama City, and they get married again. So he goes back to Panama City, and he... Uh, when I was when I was a fraudster, we adopted that philosophy of the Godfather movies. Don't ask me about my business. My business is my business. My personal life is my personal life. Right. And I preach that. You don't tell your friends or your spouse what you do for a living. That's your business. Keep it separate. My dad goes, and as soon as he gets back up with Pat, he tells her what she, what he's been doing. And she goes ballistic because, say one thing about Pat, she has a moral compass that points dead north. I mean, she is <laughs> rock solid on being a law-abiding citizen. So she goes off the handle on him, and he stops with the tax fraud at that point. Now, he continues to, to want to do it, but he never really does from that point on because uh, he's afraid of losing her. But he had this stash of these vanilla Visa gift cards. He had, I don't know, he had stolen, I guess, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000, something like that. His brother lives in Hazard, Kentucky, and his brother uh, had suffered a flood to his house, and it, I guess it had pretty much destroyed the home. My dad basically finances my brother rebuilding his home through these friggin' gift cards. I guess he sends him just truckloads of these gift cards so that Joe can... You know, <laughs> rebuild the home. Okay, and, and, and it was it was a flood. I take it he didn't have flood insurance. He did not. Yeah, okay. you, Eastern Kentucky people were were really poor. You know, you don't have much job opportunity or anything like that. And you, insurance. That's what people don't tend to understand. If you're poor, insurance is a luxury. You know, you don't you can't afford insurance. Come on, man. We're lucky to be able to eat. Right. <laughs> so. But, uh, yeah, so my dad gave me these uh, vanilla Visa gift cards, and I got dropped off at the halfway house. I was at the halfway house for about six weeks, and I was allowed to, uh, on the weekends, to go down and spend the weekend at, in Panama City at my father's home at that point and search for a job while I was down there. I was allowed out during the day, so from sunrise to sunset, you're allowed out during that 12-hour span, and then I have to be in at night was the rule. Uh, wearing an ankle monitor as well. as When I finally got released, I was wearing an ankle monitor. But um, yeah, I was about six weeks in the halfway house, get cut loose to uh, Panama City, Florida. The job I got initially was driving a taxi. So I was a taxi driver on Panama City Beach, and I worked the midnight shift. So 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. was my 12-hour shift. And the way it works, it's before Uber really pops up. The way it works is um, you get the car, and it's a 50-50 split, except you have to, every night you pay to wash the car and you have to refill whatever gas you've spent. Right. So it, it wasn't a bad gig. And to be honest with you, I, I loved driving a taxi. Absolutely loved it. And the other thing it allowed me to do was to break the law during those midnight hours. Because I'm on the beach, 
I get the job. The job starts like in October. Well, guess what? The beach is empty in October. So most of the hours, I'm I'm just free. And what I do is I get an Amazon tablet. Amazon had premiered the tablet that year. Get an Amazon tablet and start committing tax fraud right out of the gate, as just as soon as I possibly could. And um, that continued. What happens is that's 2011, and I had a couple friends that uh, that worked at the taxi company with me, and they knew who I was and what I did and everything like that. One of them wanted to learn how to do the tax fraud, and I walked him through that. About the same time I'm walking him through that, the IRS finally, now I was doing this crime back in 03. Eight years later, the IRS decides they're going to institute some security and start shutting some of this stuff down. Eight years later. Just happens to be when I'm released. <laughs> so what, what was going on, um, the typical scam for me was using the identities of dead people to file for income tax returns. And the IRS completely shut that down. Right. You, uh, you had to start stealing other people's tax returns, W-2s, things like that, to try to do the income taxes. And I was just not willing to do that. Um, that's, that's a lot of it. I've talked about willingness before, but uh, I was not willing to um, steal the identities of, of other people. I just wanted to... I was trying to steal money, sure, but I, was, <laughs> I guess my moral compass just wasn't there at that moment in time. But, um, yeah, that's that's what happened there. And I talk about it in my presentations a lot, but I was also dating pretty much the same type of women that I had been dating when I went to prison. So Strippers? <laughs> well, funny you should ask. I was... Because um, I remember there was a go-go bar down on Thomas Drive in Panama City. Yeah, that, not on Thomas anymore. It's over across the bridge oh, is in it? Panama okay. City proper. But... Um, so what was going on? Yeah, I was I was dating strippers. As a matter of fact, it took a minute for me to remember that. But yes, strippers. Okay. That continued while I was stealing money, and the stealing the stealing money through tax returns lasted about three months. Is when it was while that lasted. Um, once that shut down, I was just not willing to commit any other types of fraud online. Scared to death, honestly, just scared to death. You didn't want to go back to prison. Didn't want to go back to prison. Right, and. Um, I was on an ankle monitor, all this other stuff, and um, driving the taxi, and I got this thing, man, and that's that's been, even when I was breaking the law, when I was breaking the law, before I went to prison, I was, um, I would often give money to homeless people or hard luck cases, things like that, and when I got out, that just ramped up more than anything. Um, I don't know if it was just low self-esteem on my part, trying to uh, convince myself I was a good person. I don't know what the hell that was, but uh, I would uh, give people money. If I was making money out that, that night at tax, at driving taxi and I got somebody in the car that was giving me a hard luck story, I would, I'd give them money and everything else. And The worst one that I ever met, her name was Amy. So it was, I don't know, it was 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, they sent me across the bridge to pick up a girl at a strip club. So I go over and pick her up. She's a stripper, of course. And uh, she's giving me this hard luck story all the way to her home. She's living in the housing projects. So, uh, and the hard luck story was, I just lost my car. They repossessed it. I need $500 to get it back. That's the only reason I'm stripping 
As soon as I get that $500, I quit stripping. I can't stand it. I don't like it. I've never done it before. Blah, 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 blah. So I listen to this, you know, the entire ride uh, back to her house. And when I pull into, to, into the apartment, well, the housing project where she lives, I tell her to wait, pull out my wallet. I had $500 in there. And I handed her the 500 And uh, it got her, man. I mean, it. Uh, she didn't expect it or anything else. And I said, you know, I told her to have a nice night. Well, the next day, I, w- I come back to that apartment complex and uh, knock on the door. And I was like, hey, man, um, would you like to have lunch with me sometime? So we kind of started to date at that point. And at that point is where Brett Johnson really starts to get in a lot of trouble. Um, because I, I fell right back into that, that mentality of committing crime to provide or show love. You know, that uh, I have to buy him expensive things. Amy didn't have any furniture in her house, all right? So she had uh, two kids, no furniture. So uh, I'd been seeing her a couple of weeks, and uh, it was a Friday. Actually, it was a Thursday. That Saturday, the Panama City Orchestra was having a symphony, and I, I'd invited her to it, and we were going to go. Well, Thursday, the Thursday before that, I stopped by a furniture store and buy a complete home full of furniture. You know, the living room suit, two-bedroom suits, all this other bullshit. Buy that, tell them to deliver it on Friday. So Friday I'm hanging out with her, and uh, they deliver it, and it blows her mind, you know. And she's never had anybody do anything like that or anything. So I'm like, okay, this is working out pretty well. You know, Brett Johnson with his cognitive dissonance, improper thing. oh, this is working out great. Next day, I show up at her, at her apartment to pick her up to go to the symphony. Knock on the door, no answer. I'm like, what the hell, man? Knock, 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 nothing. She won't answer the phone, nothing like that. So I'm like, what the, something's going on here. Her car's right here. Obviously somebody's in there, and you can even hear some people rustling around in there. And I'm like, okay, what the hell? So I go and get a lawn chair, just sit down on her porch <laughs> and wait. So about 15 minutes later, door opens, guy pops his head out. And I'm like, who are you? Well, I'm Amy's fiance. I'm like, Oh, well, shit. <laughs> I wish wish you'd have told me. So uh, I let it go. I, I'm like, hey, dude, you know, do you. I don't give a shit. I, I walked off. Well, what happens is he was so jealous of me buying her furniture, he picks up the phone, calls the FBI, because Amy knew who I was. He picks up the phone, calls the FBI. Hey, uh, this guy, Brett Johnson, just bought my fiance a, uh, a home full of furniture, and we're scared to death of him. Evidently, he was on the United States Most Wanted list. They call me in. What the hell is going on, Brett Johnson? And that's when, it, even then, man, the FBI, friendly guys, friendly guys. You could tell they were just, come on, dude. It, it was that attitude right there. You know, come on, dude. You just got out of prison. You can do better than this, was was the attitude. And uh, they let me go. I guess they could, I, I didn't admit to anything, and they uh, I walked out. And uh, they never informed my probation officer or anything like that. So um, the, the bit with Amy lasted, it kept going. She, uh, I didn't talk to her again for about two months, at which point I get a message from her. I need to see her. And uh, that was a relationship. I would uh, go and see her. She would steal from me and then disappear. And uh, that went on two or three times. And 
finally I had enough. I realized that, okay, this is not going anywhere. And the reason I had enough is because Brett Johnson meets another girl. That's honestly why. And her name was Danielle. Danielle was not a stripper. She was, um, she was all right. She was all right. She was, uh, I've got a tattoo of her name on my side. That's how all right she was. Ah. So <laughs> she was all right. Her problem was that she didn't know who the hell she loved. Her, uh, her beau had uh, ran off to the military. And that's, I met her about a year after he had left. So um, I, I was with her, I don't know, about, uh, about six months. And uh, she broke up with me because her beau came back. And I, I, that is what it is. But what ended up happening, again, I, I wasn't doing tax fraud. I had been living with my dad. And um, I was not obeying the rules of the house. Pat wanted me in by, you know, 10 p.m. at night, and I just wouldn't do it sometimes, you know. And I decided I was going to move. So I moved out to an apartment. Certainly I didn't have enough money to pay for the apartment. Got a roommate. My dad gave me uh, what extra money he had left over in a safe deposit box from his stealing money. So I wiped him completely out. And uh, moving the apartment on the beach... Had a roommate taking care of half the rent, and it got to the point that uh, I was on food stamps and uh, couldn't support myself. Could not. Absolutely could not. I was trying to look for jobs. I had a couple of job offers from Deloitte, from No Before, a couple of places like that, and couldn't take them. Tried to apply for fast food. Was told by my probation officer, no, you can't take those. That's a computer, and you can't touch a computer for three years. So then tried waiter's positions. No, that's computer and credit cards. So can't touch that either. So I couldn't get a job. And um, started getting credit cards, stolen credit cards, to uh, order food. Express, specifically food is what I was doing. Um, with the opinion of if, I, if nothing else, I can at least eat. Right. You know? So um, started stealing food, and the big thing about living on the beach, especially when it's off-season, is you've got a lot of empty homes that you can use for drop addresses. Yes, you do. So um, started doing that. Got to the point that, and I talk about this in, a, in my speeches, got to the point that I had, um, I had a cat, and I had enough money to feed my cat, and I didn't have enough money to buy toilet paper. And... Um, Went to the dollar store. There's a dollar store there on Front Beach Road. Went to the dollar store and bought the cat some food. And on the way out, they had a kiosk sitting right by the door. Had toilet paper. And uh, shoplifted toilet paper right there. My buddy Jeremy, I'd, uh, I'd got him to post an ad for me on Plenty of Fish for a dating site. Because I was tired, man. I mean... Uh, Danielle had broken up with me. Amy had tried to put me in prison. Everything else. The dating site's name was Plenty of Fish. Plenty of Fish. It's still around. It's a free dating site. Okay. I <laughs> I get it now. There are plenty of fish in the sea, got Ken. It, got it, got it. <laughs> so uh, he posts that, and um, one of the people that responded, her name was Michelle Gray, mm-hmm. was her name. And I'm married to her right now. So she responded, and uh, the response she sent, I posted some pictures of, none of the pictures had me smiling. They were these serious looks and everything. So she sent me an instant message, and it was like, hey, uh, why aren't you smiling? 
And my response was, that is my happy face. And uh, we start we started talking from there. So um, we talked on the phone, everything else, for a couple of weeks. And I was, I was set that, that weekend. I was going to be spending it with another woman that I had met on Plenty of Fish. And she had promised me sex throughout the weekend. Well, Michelle calls me that same day that this other woman's supposed to come down. And she's like, I'm off work early. And I'm like, would you like to meet? <laughs> and she was like, sure. So I'm in Panama City. Michelle's in Crestview. Up there, and we meet in the halfway point, kind of Destin. Yeah. Destin, Florida. So we meet in Destin. Michelle didn't know at that point I was this criminal guy. So we're on the beach in Destin, and, and first 10 minutes in the conversation, Michelle looks at me, and she was like, uh, so what's the worst thing you've ever done? <laughs> and I looked at her, and I said, well, I just got out of prison. And she's like, no, no, no. What's really the worst thing you've ever done? And I'm, I looked at her dead serious, and I'm like, I just got out of prison. <laughs> so uh, I told her everything, man. You know, I mentioned everything, and I was big about doing that. At least I had the responsibility to do that at that point. Everyone that I knew or anyone that I dated, the first time I met them, I let them know exactly what I had done, who I was, everything else. So told Michelle, and we, uh, we sat on the beach a while, walked over and had dinner. And at the end of the night, I was like, look, I said, I like you. I'd like to continue seeing you. You're going to go home and you're going to look me up. And she was like, no, I'm not. And I was like, look, you're going to go home. The first thing you're going to do is hit Google and you're going to look me up. She's like, no, no, no. So she goes home. First thing she does is she Googles me, looks me up. Then she, her oldest son at that point, his name is uh, Taylor. She sits, he was home from the military. She sits down and tells him and asks if he thinks that she should continue to date me. And he was like, well, do you like him? And she was like, yeah, he seems pretty nice. And Taylor's like, well, hell, why not? Yeah. Long story short, I ended up moving in with uh, Michelle about two months after that. I got to the point with the apartment that I was about to get kicked out. I was late on rent, everything else. The roommate I had was a raving, and I mean a raving alcoholic. I would, uh, I'd been spending the weekends with Michelle. I would come home. Now, he was working at the airport as, as one of the parking attendants. I would come home, and I, I had a 55-gallon uh, garbage can. That entire garbage can over a three-day span would be stock full of empty beer cans. <laughs> so that was going on, and um, I just couldn't afford it anymore. Could not. So ended up moving in with Michelle, and I still don't, don't have a job. And um, what happened was is uh, I wasn't breaking the law. I was just tired. I didn't want to do it, anything else like that. And uh, started looking around for a job again. Got on Craigslist, uh, just wanting anything, anything at all. And there was a guy that was advertising for, he needed lawn care help. He ran his own lawn care business. So I called him up. He was in Destin. And uh, I was like, hey, man, I want to talk to you about this job. And he's like, yeah, come on down. So he's, his name was Dustin Doramus was his name. So <laughs> pull up to his house, and him and his brother are sitting in the garage. They're cleaning their you know lawn tools and everything. He runs the, the business out of his house. So I tell him who I am, and we're sitting down, we're talking and everything. And he was like, have you ever done this type of work? And I was like, no, but I, I'll work hard. You know, I will do my job. So he's like, uh, he gets quiet for a minute, and he was like, can I ask you something? I was like, yeah. He was like, um, are you on the run or something? 
And I was like, no. He's like, well, he's like, you just don't look like the type of person that do this kind of work. And um, I looked at him and I, I told him, I was like, no, I'm not on the run. I've been on the run, but uh, I've been out of, out of prison. This is what I served time for. I'm on probation and I just need a job, man. And he looks at me and he was like, uh, he said, I have to think about it. He said, I honestly don't know, man. He said, let me think about it. So I drive back to Crestview. Don't hear from him that day, but over the weekend, I get a call from him. And he gets me on the phone and he's like, uh, look, he said, if I hire you, are you really going to work? <laughs> and uh, I, I said, man, if you'll hire me, I promise you I will work my fucking ass off. So he was like, I'll tell you what. He said, get your ass out here Monday morning, 6 a.m., and we'll see if you want to work or not. I was like, all right. So I got there 6 o'clock in the morning Monday, and my job was to push a manual lawnmower 10 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> that was my job. $400 a week, five days a week was was the pay. And, uh, you know, I, I I had done manual labor when I was uh, a young man. In, you know, 1920, I worked in uh, with my stepfather logging. But it had been a long time, and it it wore my ass out. You know, I'd come in, pa- literally pass out, wake up the next morning, take a shower, and hit it again. But uh, I worked my ass off. I didn't know anything about cutting grass, running a weed eater, a blower, or anything else, but learned it all, did everything he wanted me to do, and... Uh, we we became friends. Not only did we become friends, but he uh, he at one point he offered to let me go in partners with business with him. He's like, I'll cut you in if you want to do it. And I was like, dude, because by this point I'm I'm really wanting to try to be this public speaker that I am. And uh, I was like, dude, I, I I appreciate it, but I just I have to do this other thing. So that that was a job I had. What happens is. In my presentations, what I say is is that it got cold, and you can't mow the grass when it gets cold, and the job ended. Right. What happened was is I had um, I interviewed because I was only making four hundred dollars a week with Dustin. I interviewed with another company, not a lawn care company, but a uh, sales company that um, sold these classes for marine uh, oil rigs. So in order to work on an oil rig, oil rig, you have to take a class. Right. So it was a company that sold the classes. And the guy hired me, and the pay was like $1,600 a week. And I'm sitting there going, hell yeah, let's do that. And I had told the guy who I was, the criminal record, everything else. He was fine with all of that. So I was supposed to begin that on a Monday. I let Dustin Dustin know the week before, hey, my job's over here. I'm moving on. So I cut loose from Dustin, go to start work at the next job, and he doesn't let me work. He decides he's not going to hire me. So I don't have a job anymore. And Dustin's already been, he's already replaced me with somebody else, so I can't go back there. So what happens is, is Michelle was the only one working, and um, that, that, that's my story, man, is, is it's always been up until the past three or four years, it's always been Brett Johnson has to prove himself, has to prove his love to people by going above and beyond what normal people will do, either by giving them expensive gifts or whatever. And with, with at that point, it was like, you know, i got to show Michelle that I'm worth it. I've got to show her that, uh, I've got to show her that I, that 
I, I have value in the relationship that, that I love her. And the way I show her I love her is by stealing shit. And what I got it in my head on, I was like, uh, you know, if nothing else, I can bring food in the house. And so got stolen credit card information, started ordering food to drop addresses. And it started out with that, just strictly food. Um, and of course it grew from there. That's, that's the thing about cybercrime is it never just is self-contained in one small area. It always blossoms out from there. So it started out with food. And then of course, once you get your deep freeze full and everything else like that, you're looking at, she's got two boys. Well, she can't really afford to clothe them and pay the housing bill and everything else. So let's get the boys some clothes. Well, Michelle needs some clothes. Let's get her some clothes. Well, Christmas is coming up. And it continued on like that. I got arrested, is what happened, um, on a food order. On a food order. It was, I forgot the holiday. I think it was going toward Thanksgiving or something like that. But um, I had ordered a bunch of steaks from, because when you're when you're stealing food, you, you of course, hit the high-end companies because they don't have good security. Now, that, are that's we talking secret. Omaha steaks? No, this is Nyman Ranch. Oh, Nyman the, Ranch. The Nyman good Brothers. Stuff. Okay. So um, I had hit Omaha, but the two big ones for me were Allen Brothers and Nyman. Um, for any out there listening, I 100% recommend Nyman Brothers. They are probably the best steak on the planet. They are outstanding. And I had stolen many steaks from them. So uh, I had an order coming in of like $1,000 in steaks. Went to pick it up, and I got arrested. It was controlled delivery. Uh, by that point, Nyman realized that there's somebody in northwest Florida who keeps hitting us regularly for steaks. So we're going to start flagging these orders. And uh, they flagged it. And I got arrested on that. Uh, Michelle had no idea what I was doing. Not a clue. Not a clue. My probation officer had no idea what I was doing. He had, uh, and I guess I broke, I mean, I broke everybody's heart. Um, probation had, had started this class, which was kind of an extension of that uh, cognitive behavioral therapy that, that the drug program taught, except post-release. So it was, it was this, you know, pilot program where they bring in who they think are their best candidates and you go through the six month class, then they cut you loose from probation. You know, they, they, you're great now. You're good to go. Well, I had been breaking the law the entire time during that. So, um, I get arrested. Michelle is on the way back from work when I'm arrested. I call her, tell her to come to the police station. And that's when she finds out that Brett Johnson has been breaking the law. Um, I'd, I'd actually told the, uh, I'm always that social engineer, always that guy. So I knew the detectives cause they said, uh, I'd heard them talking and they said it was a lot more than just food that they were looking at. So I told them, I was like, Hey man, I'll tell you whatever you want me to tell you. As long as I can talk to my, uh, my fiance first, Michelle. And they're like, you'll sit down and talk with us. And I said, I'll give you my word, whatever you want me to talk about. I'll confess to anything that, that I've done. Just let me talk to her first. And they're like, okay. So they <laughs> they bring her, her in the interrogation room. They step out. I hug her. And as I hug her, I'm telling her, this is what you need to get rid of in the house immediately. Bam, 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 bam. All right. And uh, I tell her not to talk to him, not to do anything else like that. So she leaves. 
they step back in the room, look at me, they're like, well, Brett, uh, you said you'd talk to us. And the first words out of my mouth were, you know, I'm really sorry to have to do this to you, but I'm going to have to have an attorney now. And they got pissed. They got really upset about that. Well, you said you were going to talk to us. And I was like, I know I said that, but I'm not trying to go to jail for any length of time. <laughs> so <laughs> I got charged for the, uh, for the food order and a couple other uh, uh, things they could connect me to as well. And I go back to federal prison because it was a probation violation. I go back to federal prison for 10 months. And where was this? I got sent to, back to Fort Worth, Texas. So okay. wherever, when you violate probation, you go back to wherever your last federal institution was. So okay. I, I was released from Fort Worth. I went back to Fort Worth. At my sentencing on probation, um, the only people that were there, the U.S. Marshals was there, the judge, the prosecutor, my probation officer, and Michelle. That was it. That was it. Uh, Michelle stands up and she tells the uh, she tells the judge that I've been a better father to her kids than their real dad was. That that I'm a good man. That uh, that I yeah I screwed up, but that uh, she knows I'm a good person. And the thing is, the prosecutor he stands up. Prosecutor says the same damn thing. This female, the prosecutor says this. Prosecutor's like, you know, he's. We think he's a good guy. He just. This is. We think this is a one-time thing. Probation officer says that. I'm sitting there crying like a baby. Judge looks at me. Twelve months. Soon as the judge says twelve months, probation officer stands up. Probation officer looks at the judge and he's like, Your Honor, if you can give Mr. Johnson uh, a year and a day, he can get out earlier, back to his family. We'd like to see that. And the prosecutor says, yeah, we'd like to see that. And uh, judge amends the sentence to a year and a day so I can get out in 10 months. Uh, Michelle, during that entire time, didn't question it. She didn't hesitate on uh, being with me or anything else. And I say it in my presentation, but it, it really is true, Ken. I had uh, my entire history of relationships I had never had anybody that I'd been with that uh, needed me for me not what I could give them and Michelle was the first person that it it didn't matter that I couldn't give her anything she didn't need me for what I could give her she just needed me for me on that and I, I hadn't had that um, she, she, she was there during the entire 10 months you know worried about me everything else so I get out and in 10 months, get out, go back to uh, Crestview, Florida. They kill the probation, so I'm off probation at that point. So I can touch a computer. Me and Michelle, we get married about a month and a half after I get out. We were married uh, April 11th. I think it was, I think it was 2014, maybe 2015. Forgot about the year I got married. <laughs> but uh, got married, I'm off probation, and I'm looking for work. And can't find it, man. Cannot find it. Um, so I'm, I know, even today, I am not the guy that will ever say I won't go back to crime. And the reason I won't say that, there's actually a really good reason. Um, I believe that if you, if you say never, that you're setting yourself up for failure at that point. That you're letting your guard down. And that um, 
something may blindside you to cause me to go back to crime. And I know what my triggers are. I know what will cause me to go back to committing crime. Even today, I know that. And back then, it was you know no job. <laughs> no job at all. Couldn't, couldn't find work. And I knew, I knew I would, I would go a little bit further with that until, by God, I was going to start in synthetic fraud. I was going to set up a dark web marketplace, some bullshit like that, and make some money. I didn't want to do that. So I looked at Michelle and I was like, hey, let me see what the hell I can do. Ended up signing on to LinkedIn. And my initial strategy on LinkedIn was to message every single cybersecurity and law enforcement officer on the planet and tell them, hey, I'm here as an expert and public speaker. And that fell on its ass pretty quick. Nobody cared because I'm still that criminal. You know, I'm, who's going to trust me? Long story short. The first person that took me under their wing was Neil O'Farrell, the head of the Identity Theft Council. He sees that I'm on uh, LinkedIn. I had sent him a message, and he was like, let's talk. <laughs> so uh, I ended up talking with him on the phone, I don't know, about an hour, hour and a half. He gets me a gig on a uh, TV show. So... Uh, <coughs> <coughs> Yeah, Neil gets me a gig on a TV show called The Security Brief, was the name of the show. And my spot was, I guess, about five minutes long. But The Security Brief paid for my travel back and forth from New York. And I thought it might lead to something. Long story short, it didn't at all. But at, that was the first real appearance that I had. What Neil does from there, this is probably another six months after that, he reaches out to me. He's got a presentation in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, Neil is in San, San Francisco at this point, but this company called Ideology has paid for him to come to come to Atlanta to speak at their little conference, their, their client conference. And he was like, Brett, how would you like to drive over and speak as well? And I was like, Neil, thank you so much. Let's do that. So as I'm doing that, I send this email out to this FBI agent named Keith Malarski. Keith Malarski is the, he's retired now, he's been retired a few months. But while he was with the FBI, I, I'm not going to hesitate in saying that he was the number one cyber agent on the planet. He knows exactly how these groups operate. He understands the mindset, everything else. He was involved with the uh, Carter's Market bust, with some of the Shadow Crew people, with Silk Road. I mean, with the, all the major cybercrime busts over the past 20 years is Keith Malarski. He, he was out of the Pittsburgh office. He knew who I was, and I sent him a message. And my message was like, hey, you know, I just wanted you to know that I respect every single thing you've done. No hard feelings at all. I think you did a great job. And I tagged on at the end of it. By the way, I would like to be a legal person. Anything you could help me with. And the dude, um, he responded to me within two hours. And took me under his wing, gave me references, advice, everything else. And that, so if you look at what turns Brett Johnson around, it starts with my sister, you know, that disowning me, then coming back in my life just to tell me she loves me, and then, then being there for me while I was in prison. Then Michelle, that that 
needing me for me, not for material goods or me going above and beyond in relationships, criminally, stuff like that. Then finally it was Keith Malarski. That uh, I, to this day, and I, I've mentioned this to several agents, if, if Malarski would have came with any other response, if he would have uh, not responded, anything else, I think that the, uh, the likelihood of me being back in prison today is pretty high. You know, he gave, uh, he gave validation to what I was wanting to do. He was 100% supportive. Um, from there, what happens is Carice Hendrick, my podcast partner for Online Fraudcast, she sends me a message. As I'm talking to Malarski, communicating back and forth with him, she sends me a message. She's looking for a keynote speaker for the Card Not Present conference. And she was like, have, <laughs> she's like, have you ever spoke at a conference? I was like, oh, I speak all the time. <laughs> Lying through my just, teeth. Just avoiding the question. Exactly. <laughs> okay. And then she was like, well, where's the last place you spoke? Well, I just got through speaking at ideology. And I was like, well, I just did an ideology conference. <laughs> so I guess she contacted them, and she's looking for references. So I contact my probation officer. He, he won't give a reference. He can't. So um, contact Keith Malarski, and I was like, hey, Keith, can you just talk to her? I said, I don't, just, she's needing references to know my skill level and everything. He was like, sure. To this day, I have no idea what he said to her. Not a clue. I've never asked. None of my business. But what happens is, now Carice did this vetting thing with me for, I don't know, six months. The way it ended, I gave her Malarski as a reference, gave her Neil O'Farrell as a reference. And I, to hear Carice say it today, Neil told her, he's a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> Which I asked Neil about that a few months back, and he's like, I don't remember that, Brett. And I was like, well, Neil, I'm not. I do have remorse. So I agree with you. There are some sociopaths out there, but I, I justified my crimes. I wouldn't be a sociopath. Uh, you know, a sociopath doesn't justify things. So uh, Neil told her that. I don't know what Malarski told her, but she ends up calling me back, and she's like, uh, references check out. Um, but at the end of the day, Brett, what I'm really worried about is you coming in the conference and it's going to be like a, a wolf in the chicken pen. You know, you're going to, you're the criminal. You're going to hear all these people at the conference that's going to talk about their security flaws and problems. And then you can be use that against them to defraud them. And by this point too, I guess I was getting a little fed up because it was every week just kept putting me off. And I was like, nothing's going to happen here. So by this point, I'm like, you know, screw it. And I just told her. I was like, look, Carice, you want the truth of the matter? The truth of the matter is, is your people at that conference, if I wanted to defraud them, I could do it right now. I don't need to listen to them tell me what their problems are. I already know what their problems are. And she, she, at that point, she got quiet. And the next words out of her mouth was, you know, you're right. <laughs> and... I guess that was the, the turning point right there where she, she committed to bringing me in. So uh, she was the first person that publicly hired me. They announced it on their website. The first paid speeches I did was for B.B. West Bank. B.B. West used to go to the CMP conferences all the time. They see that CMP is bringing in this former United States Most Wanted cyber criminal, and they decide they want him before CMP gets him. So they end up calling me, can you come in next month? 
Um, so out of all my speeches, I only gave one free speech through my entire career in order to get this, this ball started. Um, Carice has been amazing. Uh, I was going to the CMP conference. She calls up Microsoft. She had a contact at Microsoft, tells him who I am and suggests that he might want to come down and talk to me. Well, he did. He, uh, he was very anxious to come and talk to me. He flies from, you know, Seattle down to Orlando, Florida, just to see Brett Johnson pulls me off to the side. He and I are having dinner one night and he was like, uh, Brett, what I would like to do, ideally, you could build your own team and then you could test every single product and service that Microsoft has for fraud, vulnerabilities, what have you. Well, he says that. And I'm sitting there going, damn, that's a career right there. <laughs> <laughs> so I've jumped on it, man. And that never happened. What happened was, as I fly into Microsoft, by the time I get there, legal has heard this idea that he's got. And it's like, no. No, we're not letting some criminal on our systems. So it, it moves from that into, well, we'll have a team and you can walk them through it. Well, once legal hears that, it moves from that to, well, you can just tell us about it. And then finally it moves over into, well, can you, can you find some, some stuff online about how people are defrauding us? Is what it turns into. Um, that's when I first started, Ken, and at that point, I'm very grateful for Microsoft. I think they're outstanding. The people over there are, are, are amazing. The problem was is they really didn't know what to do with me. And the problem, too, was is I didn't know what to do with them. I had just started. That being said, I was fortunate enough to work with them, I think, for six months during that point. And that six months, it gave me enough um, legitimacy with other companies because when Microsoft hires you, when they bring you in, that tells everybody on the planet that they trust you. Yeah. And at that point, all these other companies come in and they start hiring me for conferences, for uh, consulting work, everything else. What had been going on with me, when I started speaking, I didn't know if everything was going to work out all right. So I was always prepping to break the law. You know, I was that guy. If, if everything fails, I will go back to synthetic fraud or I'll start a marketplace or do whatever I need to do. I wasn't breaking the law, but I was damn sure preparing to break the law. And um, when Microsoft hired, it was probably a month and a half, maybe two months after Microsoft actually hired me. I'm back in Birmingham and Michelle's asleep. The boys are in bed. And it was an aha moment for me. I was sitting there all alone, and it, I mean, it just hit me, man. I was like, uh, I'm not going to break the law anymore. And I hadn't talked to Keith Malarski since, through that entire span or anything else. But uh, it, it, it hit me. I wasn't going to break the law. And I got this, this, just, this damn empty feeling. I mean, I, it was like just a hole in me all of a sudden. Um, I waited about a week, and I wrote Malarski a note. And the notes said, you know, hey, I'm sorry I didn't have not contacted you, but I didn't want you to think I was, I didn't want you to, I didn't want to have to lie to you. And I told him, I was like, I'm fine. I'm good now. And uh, since that point, I've not been tempted, I've not broken the law, anything else like that. Um, as you know, today I travel the planet. I consult with everybody. I've got a book in the works, got 
at least one TV show that's being worked on, um, two podcasts. My marriage has went through some troubles. <laughs> we're going through, we're seeing counselor now. And I think a lot of the problem with the marriage is that um, when I married Michelle, I was a criminal. And I stayed a criminal up until I started doing this kind of stuff today. You know, it's been that transition all of a sudden from me being that, that guy who stole things, who didn't have friends, who didn't have a goal, who didn't have anything else like that, to now I'm this guy that uh, is intent on not being remembered as the guy who stole everything, but being remembered as the guy who turned it around. So uh, that's that's one of my goals. Another goal is to is to find out who I am, why I've done the things I've done, um, to reconcile my childhood with with my adult actions as a criminal. Um, I think that's really important. But um, because of all that, and because of this podcast, you know, going back and, and going through all this stuff has dredged up all these emotions and everything else. And our, my marriage has suffered because of it. Certainly has. It's suffered. Uh, to the point that I thought that it was going to end at some, at, at some point. Um, we're fortunate that both of us have committed to it and we're working through it, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's basically the Brett Johnson turnaround is that. Well, I've been producing your podcasts for over a year now. You have. <laughs> and I've heard your, your whole story, everything. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've left anything out, uh, especially uh, with the uh, Anglerfish podcast. We've yeah, I, think, covered, I think we've pretty much got it. Pretty much covered everything <laughs> in, in season one, and I, and I think that's great. Uh, you, you mentioned that um, I've heard you say that it, you would do anything for love. You've always uh, done things to show people how much you love them, yeah. and you like to see and feel that they love you. Yeah. Well, I have a question. How do you feel about you? Do oh. you love yourself now? You know, my the, the marriage counselor asked a similar question a couple weeks ago. And what he said was, his question was, is he was like, uh, would you have a relationship with yourself, with a female version of you? And my response was not the response he was expecting. My response was yes, but. <laughs> so the correct answer is yes, because you you like yourself and you feel good about yourself. All right. My answer was yes, but. And the but on that was yes, but the reason is, is because I feel that I could fix that female version of me. <laughs> so now that being said, that being said, do I like me? I really like what I'm doing these days. I I like the person that I am becoming. I am um, I'm constantly amazed at the um, at the way that I've been fortunate enough to turn things around. Um, you know, I've got. Most people don't understand that. I mean, I. most people have friends. I didn't have friends for 30 years. 30 years. I went through most of my life not being me, but being whoever I was with wanted me to be. You know, just to satisfy them. 
Um, I'm a stage actor. And that, that's indicative of that, trying to be somebody else. So it's only recently that I've been me, you know, that 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 I've been comfortable enough and, and like who I am enough to just be who, I, who I'm supposed to be instead of who other people want me to be. So do I like me? Yeah, I like me. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I'm not... Uh, I'm not conceited about it, you know. I'm asked. Uh, I'm asked pretty frequently. Do I think I can make amends for my past? I don't. I don't. I'm not even going to pretend to think I, I can make amends for the past. But what I can do is I can make sure that any future decisions are decisions toward the good instead of the, toward the bad. And I think that uh, I think that's all you can ask of anybody is to do that. Um, I work my ass off these days to try to protect people to try to. Uh, it's it's gotten to the point the past few weeks that it's 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 what it's past just cybercrime and identity theft. You know the the responses that I've gotten from this Anglerfish podcast. I got a girl, a woman the other day. Actually this is like 4 days ago. She sent me an email and uh Let's pause this so I can pull up that email because I think it's worth reading sure. what she says. So I, the other day I checked my email and I got an email from a listener of the Anglerfish podcast and she had just started listening. So this is the email she sent. She says, Hi Brett, I just started listening to the Anglerfish podcast and I have to say... By just say, and I have to start just by saying thank you for sharing your story with the world. It takes a lot of courage to share this level of detail about your life. While I haven't shared this often, I felt compelled to reach out to you as I've never known anyone who has had a traumatic childhood as I felt I was raised in. While listening to your podcast, there were countless moments where I was brought to tears because I had an almost identical experience with my mother, with my older brother and sister, as you and Denise did, where they had to help fill in the gaps. I, too, have a story about a butcher knife being used against my father, having things thrown at us just for laughing or playing as kids, manic mood swings by my mother, death threats, persistent threats of divorce. As you said, you never knew which way the wind was going to blow that day. I'm looking forward to listening to more episodes of the podcast. I'm so fascinated with the content of your episodes and your candid openness to share your story and perspective. So she sent me that email, and uh, I, I wrote her back. And I, I'll just read the thread. It's, it's fairly short. But uh, my response to her, and I, I'm leaving out her name because I don't think she wants me to tell who she actually is or anything like that. But uh, my response was, thank you so much for writing me. Thank you for listening, and more important, thank you for reaching out. I'm 49 now. It took up until this year for me to truly be able to talk about this stuff. A lot of the reason it took so long was the victim mentality. Blaming myself, thinking no one wanted to hear, and being embarrassed. I'd actually had a block about it. I never talked about it, and I couldn't. I couldn't even begin to approach it. But the past few years as a legal person have helped, and I made a conscious decision that the most important thing in my life was to find out who I was and why I did what I did, and I chose to become healthy. It started in speeches. 
it's really went full-blown with the podcast. It hasn't been easy. It certainly hasn't been fun. But it's been healthy. I've apologized and I've tried to make amends. I've confronted who I needed. I've relived my past to the point it almost cost me my marriage. But I'm healthier and I'm becoming a better person. And that is worth everything. I want you to know I'm damn proud of you. For you to have a childhood similar to mine, I know you didn't come through it unscathed, but you came through it. If you are like me, you have something most people never will and most people will never understand. It's difficult to put into words what that something is. It's a strength, a will, an understanding, an insight of people that few have. But it's also a kind heart and a softness, almost a humility. I don't think having that was worth what we went through, but it's what we got. I'm proud of you for being able to talk about it. I don't know you, but I hope you are past the point of being embarrassed by it, of maybe blaming yourself, of thinking no one wants to hear your story. I hope you understand that you were completely blameless, that it was all the abuser's fault, not yours. It took me a long time to get there. I'm hopeful you're there as well. If you ever want to talk, bitch, moan, complain, or whatever, I'm here. And if I can ever assist you with anything, please let me know. Email or call. My number is in my signature. Thank you so much for reaching out. It breaks my heart to think of children being abused like that. But you reaching out makes it clear I'm on the right path. Thank you. And she sent me one more email after that. And uh, her response was, Brett, it's hard to put into words how much your kind words mean to me. From the bottom of my heart, I thank you for your words of encouragement and support in such a raw and honest way. For you to pour your heart into someone you don't know shows just what a genuine person you are. I wish I could say I was as brave as you have been to share my story. But the truth is this email to you was the first time I had ever shared publicly the details of the things I saw and dealt with as a child slash adult. I've spent the, fast, the last few years unraveling it. Many of the memories have been blocked from my mind. Thinking back, it's likely better that way. You referenced something that I too have been trying to understand. You said the important thing for you was to find out who you are and understand why you did what you did. I know that our lives after the abuse unfolded differently, but I have found myself wondering the same thing. I keep searching to understand my tendencies and why I went on in a life to endure the things that I did. What I learned is that being raised in that toxic environment didn't teach me to have boundaries or to have self-worth. Instead, it caused me to allow others to abuse me without even knowing I was being abused. I know all too well that anger and frustration that your sister holds against your parents. I wish I could say I'm past that point or that I don't still feel the shame, but honestly, I do. It's hard to move past it. What you have done with your story and how you have turned your life around is so inspiring. I know that the path to healing is a long one, but you have shown that it's worth it. There was a reason I felt the tug to reach out about our shared story. This journey you are on is a part of your healing, and I now feel strongly that maybe one day, I too can help others overcome this, just as you are doing now. 
I cannot truly thank you enough for taking the time to listen and to provide support. It means a lot. What you're doing here matters. Never lose sight of that. That is worth more than all the cybersecurity, advice, cybercrime insight, identity theft insight on the planet. And um, to know that, that just by me t- talking about my past, that I've helped somebody, man. I mean, that, uh, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Anglerfish. I appreciate it. If you like it, please subscribe and drop me a line saying hello. Hello is always good. You can reach me direct at brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. That's brett, B-R-E-T-T, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H.com. Please tell your friends about us. Rate and review the Anglerfish podcast wherever you can. In the next few weeks, we'll be launching Season 2 of Anglerfish, which will examine the darkest corners of our online lives and what you need to do to remain safe. Please email me questions, comments, concerns, personal stories, and any topics you might like to hear discussed. That's brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Brett Johnson. Stay safe, stay secure, and stay vigilant.